weird shit that my mom says. Episode 18. I'm Jules Creighton. And I'm Cece Alice. We don't have anything new to tell each other in this episode because we're recording a bunch of episodes back to back. What are you talking about? We wanted to talk to each other endlessly at the beginning of the other one because we hadn't talked to each other in a long time. And I feel like we probably still could have BSed for a very long time, even after the 10 minute mark. Yeah, we probably could have. <sighs> I feel I feel less nervous now. Because I I did the Myrtles one in the last episode, and that was like all that crushing weight on me, all of that research that I took way too seriously. So I'm so sorry to everybody that I was so serious. God, what's wrong with you? Why are you so fucking serious all the time? I'm so serious in the mornings. It's uh, just all about the business. So sad. Well... I'm not going to make it any better with this case that I'm going to cover today. Why? I'm covering a crime. It's a very well-known crime, but I think even though our listeners will know what it is that I'm talking about today because of the title of the episode, I'm not going to tell you what I'm covering okay. and who I'm talking about, and then you'll maybe you'll guess it before I get to the thing that makes you go oh okay so oh okay it is a really well-known case it's a little bit more current than what we normally do but still older but i would assume that there's probably like it's possible that this person has siblings that might still be alive but older or maybe nieces and nephews um i don't know that there's I mean, I, I don't know that we're ever making fun of the victims anyway. You know, I, I think that, that we can handle that with our joking right. that we do from time to time. Um, there are some parts of this that are a little bit grody. I think if you clicked on the episode, you're probably somewhat familiar with this case already anyway. And it's something that I was familiar with myself before researching it, but I still got in really deep with it. So... Let's get let's get into this. Okay. I I might have had some booping in there. I'm so sorry. Um that you might have to cut out because I can handle I that. Had, okay. I had I had to plug in my phone because because we've been on it for a long time and so I had to finagle some things. Hopefully That's it okay. Fall. I think that I've been booping a lot like while I talk somehow. So I'm Hopeful it's not my chair that I'm sitting in and that the last couple episodes don't have a whole bunch of booping because I still need to do more editing on these episodes where I'm not sitting in the old uncomfortable <laughs> chair that I was in before. So we're going to go back to the 1920s is the earliest okay. that we're going to talk about here. So. In the 1920s, there was a lady named Phoebe Short who lived in Boston, Massachusetts with her husband, Cleo Short, and their five daughters. The Phoebes and Cleo. 
Yep. This Phoebe and Cleo. So five daughters. Eventually, the family moves to a smaller town that's just about seven miles away from Boston in the suburbs called Medford, which was a lot smaller and a better place for them to raise their children. Okay. Cleo had a good job as a mini golf course builder. And oh, it's kind of a fun job, right? Can you imagine that on your resume? Mini, col- mini golf course builder. And then... I don't think that people had resumes back then. When do you think people started to do resumes? That would be a good thing to Google, but not something that I did in this process. Okay. Well, fail. Okay, Sorry. go on. Mini golf go, course Go Google guy. it, listeners. So mini golf course guy, Cleo... He was a great provider for their family, but near the end of the decade, all of that changed. So as many of us know, on Monday, October 28th of 1929, otherwise known as Black Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average declined nearly 13%. The next day, the market dropped by nearly 12%, and by mid-November, the Dow had lost almost half of its value. The horror. Yeah. That is actually terrifying. Yeah. So- Great Depression. So this decline just kept going throughout the next year. It took a huge toll on Cleo and Phoebe and their entire family. They had lost all of their savings in the stock market. And Cleo was very, very depressed and down. And on October 15th of 1930, he went missing. Phoebe told reporters and police that this was very unlike him and that something must really be wrong. She pleaded for help in finding him, but they disregarded her, claiming that he probably had run off. But shortly thereafter, his car was found near a lake. It was abandoned, and this led everyone, including Phoebe, to believe that he had completed suicide by jumping into the Charles River due to his depression over their financial situation. The Charles River claims... A lot of lives I have learned through listening oh, I didn't to know True much Crime. About them. Uh, it's like a really nasty river. You're Boston, oh. right? Yeah. I guess that would be, yeah. So Phoebe pulls herself up by her bootstrap. She moves her five daughters to a small apartment near the elementary school in town, and she finds a position as a bookkeeper to support them. Okay. Relatable. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. So relatable. But during the Great Depression and with five kids and being a woman in the 1930s, that's that was probably rough. I can't even imagine that. I was a single mom on my own with three kids unexpectedly, and that that was a that was a lot. So I can't even imagine five five mouths to feed. Oh yeah, yeah, and it gets a little bit harder too. So. She did her best to raise her daughters, and some moved away early on, including her daughter Elizabeth, who was also known as Beth Short, and I'll call her Beth throughout this story. Oh, no. I know what this story is. Her dad went missing? Well, we'll talk about it. Okay. I learned a lot more about her. And so what I'm going to cover more so in this story than what you may have heard is I do want to talk a lot about who Beth was and make sure that it's known that who she was isn't really how she was always portrayed to be. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. So 
Beth had been very sick throughout her childhood. She had asthma and had eventually contracted childhood tuberculosis, which a lot of kids died from. Yeah, She did, did not die from that, obviously, but that's something that, that she went through. She survives it. She missed a ton of school in junior high, though. I think they said 53 days between sixth and seventh grade. And so she Damn. really had a – yeah, she had a hard time catching up afterward when she got – to eighth grade and she was finally able to participate and be at school more. She still had trouble keeping a C average despite trying really, really hard. So also despite those grades and the difficult she was having in her classes, she was gorgeous and extremely kind. And that led her to be really popular with her classmates. Um, she got okay. sick again at the age of 15, however, and needed an operation to remove fluid from her lungs. That built oh, up. Oh, no. Yeah. So she gets the operation. She survives this. But the surgeon, after the surgery, recommends that she live somewhere warmer to improve her health. Mm-hmm. And so she's 15 years old. She's a sophomore in high school when this happens. And they did have family friends in Miami Beach, Florida. And so Beth decides she's just going to drop out of high school because school's really not going very well for her anyway. So she drops out of school. She moves to Miami Beach, and she gets a job as a waitress down in Miami. Can you imagine? So I'm I'm just thinking about, like, that's Lucy, 15. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, like, times were different. Times were so different back then. That's crazy. I thought we were going to get more squirrely on this episode. That's not going to happen, is it? Mm-mm. It's probably not going to happen, no. Um, this is a, a bummer okay. one. I think people, so if you've picked up on it yet, and obviously you've heard or you've seen the, the, the title of the episode, this episode does get a little bit more gruesome at a point, but that's not going to be my main focus throughout this, uh, th- throughout this story. This is more about, for, for me, just talking about who Elizabeth or Beth Short really was. So Like I said, Miami gets a job as a waitress. And at this point, um, there's a ton of men leaving to join the military and fight in World War II. And she just decides after seeing all these men in uniform that she needs a man in uniform. She has the main (laughs) goal that she sets at 15 years old where she's like, I am going to marry a military man and have a family and a bunch of kids with a military man. And that is my focused goal that I have. It is straight up. That's a goal. Her primary focus. Because they're so hot in their uniform. Yeah. Because, I mean, I get we it. all like a man in uniform. I get it. I get it. So I married. I ultimately married a Marine. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yes, you did. (laughs) So while living in Miami, to find a military man, she frequented nightclubs and anywhere she might find these men. So she's really hoping to find her future husband, even at the age of 15. She returned home each summer to Massachusetts for the next three years, despite her new active social life in Miami. Okay. Fast forward now to 1942. Phoebe, her mother, receives a letter in the mail one day. It is an apology letter from her husband, 
Cleo. Shut up. Yeah. Dude is not dead. He just ran away (gasps) from the financial burden of providing for his wife and raising five daughters during the Great Depression. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. He states that he moved to California and started a new life. He asks Phoebe to take him back. And she's like, nah. Like, go. She basically tells him to just go fuck herself. And I'm like, fuck yes, Phoebe. Good for you. Do more than go fuck yourself. Jesus. And this poor woman is like, that's not like like my husband. Blah, blah, blah. Nope. He really did. He fucking took off so he wouldn't have to pay for a family during the Great Depression. Well, I guess it is like your husband. Something you didn't know about him. So did he have a new family? Out there? I don't think so. There was nothing I could find that indicated that he had a family. There he just well, I think he probably didn't want to have a family. I think that's the reason he ran away. Oh that's my, my guess. God. Is that he just didn't want to have to provide for anyone. <sighs> he could just go take care of him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty gross. And so this is I mean, okay, so she was six. Beth was six when he ran away. So 12 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm trying That's to. That's so re- fucked. Like, the, I'm like feeling the anger inside for her. Yeah, I just cannot. Ugh. I cannot. So Beth, who had been six at the time of his di- disappearance, like I said, is now 18. She gets an idea in her head and she decides she's going to take this opportunity to get out of Massachusetts again because her summer or her winters in Miami are over. And so she writes him a letter that says, well, since you got out of paying for me to grow up, you should probably send me some money right now. Mm -hmm. And he thinks to himself, well, I guess that's the least I can do. But that didn't mean that he wanted any sort of relationship with her. Don't be fooled that this giving him him giving her money meant he wanted any kind of relationship. He thought he could just give her money and she'd go away. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on. So he wanted his wife back, but he didn't want. So, like, if the wife said no to him, then he just was like, fuck the kids, too. Like, I don't it really care. It seems so kind of. He's He's a confusing character here. And not that I know that much about him. He's pretty brief in this, but it just it kind of shows you how she's getting around a little bit. So so he sends the money to Beth and he's thinking, like, I gave her the money. We're good. So Beth has other plans. She uses the oh, money no. to buy herself a ticket to California and she shows up at his doorstep. Oh, fuck no. Yeah. Oh. She thinks he's going to let her stay with him, which... He's like, oh, I really don't want you here. But he does agree to let her stay as long as she takes care of the house and follows all of his rules. I can't. I'm like, she's at this point how old? 18. Less than 18, right? Oh, she's 18. 18. Okay. So at this at this point, she's like traveled around. She's kind of been on her own, kind of. I mean, I know she was staying with family, but like you have to be pretty brave. Like, she's she's pretty brave. She is brave. There's no doubt she, throughout the story, I think you're going to see that, that she is comfortable with being a risk taker to an extent. Uh, yeah. With, like, she's definitely adventurous, for sure, I would say. <laughs> she's, Putting it lightly. Yeah, but not in the ways that people act like she is. So. Okay. Yeah, at this time. 
Beth was really already accustomed to that nightlife in Miami and like that mm-hmm. she got to meet a lot of servicemen there. And she needed to realize her dream of, of marrying a man in uniform. That is her number one focus. And it will be throughout this whole story. So, All right. Yeah. So her dad's not a big fan of her going out to nightclubs and bars and trying to meet servicemen. What does he care? Yeah. Like, well, he, he, he doesn't like off. it. He gets pissed off and he kicks her out. He's just mad because she like came there and then she wasn't like tending to everything that he wanted probably. Yeah. In that moment. It's not like he really cares what she's doing with her life. He didn't care for 12 years. I know, right? It's it's silly, I think, because he just needed that control, I'm guessing. So mm. it's 1943 by this time and Beth needs a job. So she applies for and is hired to work as a clerk in the commissary at Camp Cook near Santa Barbara, California, which at the time was an armored Mm -hmm. World War II training camp. Uh, Camp Cook is now Vandenberg Air Force Base, if any listeners are familiar with that base. Okay. Her supervisor was really impressed by her hard work there, her kindness, and her ability to get on well with the men training there. Um, she also won a beauty contest that took place there at the time. I'm thinking about, like, if I think back, I'm wondering if it was, you know, they would put on, like, events for the soldiers to they yeah. have, like, a pretty girl or a band playing or whatever it is. I'm guessing there was some kind of beauty pageant that took place with people around the area to keep them entertained before they went to war while they were getting ready to go. So, um, so while, while she's there at Camp Cook, she gets involved with and stays with one of the servicemen, but it's speculated that he was abusive. And this led to her not staying there very long and moving on. <sighs> After this, she continues frequenting bars and nightclubs, just looking for her soulmate in uniform. Oh, I wish yeah. that that was a thing. Okay. Yeah. And so around this time, though she didn't drink often herself, One night she was in the company of a man who was very drunk and ended up getting arrested for underage drinking despite not being drunk herself. She gets fingerprinted and booked and they take a mug shot, which people see a lot when they look her up that makes her look like some kind of criminal when she's really not. So I did take a second, though, because I was like, she was she was 19 at this time now. And I'm like, wasn't the drinking age 18 back then? Wasn't that your assumption? I yeah, I mean, I guess I thought so because our parents, the legal drinking age was 18 in the 70s. So. Yeah, so I decided to find a did you know moment because that's how I am and I have to Google things when they come up and I'm curious. Yep. After the prohibition, most states set their drinking age at 18, including Wisconsin, where we grew up and where we're used mm-hmm. to hearing stories about our parents. Some states, though, had 21 being the legal drinking age, which was California. So they had had a legal drinking age of 21 since 1931 or 33. Sorry. California. Sorry if you're from California, but you guys have too many laws. I know that's what I was thinking. I got to deal with some of those laws in California. Jeez. I'm just telling you. Even though she was 19, they considered her a juvenile and they used juvenile (laughs) officers and they sent her back to Massachusetts. Here's a fun fact that I learned this week is that if you're a female, um, your brain stops cooking by the time you're 21, and it's not fully cooked in men until they're 25. 
That sounds about right. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you got to put that back in the oven for a minute and keep it cooking because they're still stupid. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting because I thought that we were all like, what is it, frontal cortex? Um, Something develops until you're 25, but apparently in in women it's, I read this week, is 21. Mm. It's because we're the superior. I'm just kidding. Men, sorry. Most of our listeners are women, so it's fine. Um, That's fine. It's fine. Yeah. So Beth gets stuck back in Massachusetts again, and she doesn't stay home with her mother very long. She makes her way back to Florida as soon as she's able because that's easier than getting back to California where she thinks it's better for her health. She just figures somewhere warm is better than somewhere cold, and Florida is easier for me to get to. So she heads back down to Florida. Also, weather would be more humid and that would be better on her tuberculosis lung. Yeah, she she thought California was better for her overall, but um she's okay with with Florida a little bit too, but while she's there, she does meet a special military man and his name is Major Matthew Gordon Jr. And they headed off really quickly and by any account I can find he treated her really well. And they see one another until he is sent over to Asia to fight in World War II. And she writes him tons of letters. There is one account that says that over the course of just nine days, she wrote him 11 different letters at one time. Oh, no. She just really loved her and uh, she really loved him. And, and they wrote tons of letters to each other. And he wrote her back when he could. And their relationship really stayed strong. But in 1945, Matthew is in a plane crash. No. And he survives. Yeah, he he does survive and he gets sent to India to recover. And while he's there, he sends her a letter proposing marriage and she writes back and accepts his proposal. So they are engaged. And Matthew makes a full recovery and he ends up put back out into the war without being able to come home in between. And so he goes back out and keeps fighting in the war. And Beth keeps waiting for him at home. She's extremely excited to see him again. But on August 10th of 1946, and I think that World War II ended on August 2nd, I believe. So just weeks before the end of World War II, he's in another plane crash and he dies. I, we are going to have to talk about reincarnation soon because this is so sad. I just want to believe... That she just like chose this really difficult path on this one and, you know, and that her next reincarnation would be real happy. Like she just had some shit to learn. Oh, man. This is more conversation for another for next episode, I think. But I just I think that the more I'm learning about reincarnation, a lot of these souls that have gone through really hard lives on the next one, that's when they start to where you have kids with really intense things going on with them because yeah. they mm-hmm. they haven't gotten over that that trauma quite yet and I think right, this right. is a case where I'm like god this she pro- I I'd, I'd imagine whatever child ended up with her soul had gone through some things when they were younger so um, I'll that, think about like yeah. medieval times it's, I know right life's been brutal for for ages we got it, it easy been. right now it has been. So Beth was heartbroken, of course, and she moves back to Massachusetts again. 
and works as a cashier at a movie theater for a period of time saving her paychecks in order to move west as soon as possible to start over after the loss of Matthew. So she makes just enough money, and as soon as she's got just enough money, she heads back to Hollywood with hopes of maybe becoming an actress, but still keeping her ultimate dream of marrying and having a family with a United States serviceman. Still okay. staying focused, even though she lost one. So after the move, she gets there, but she has really, really very little money. And she stays in a small hotel room, hanging out at bars and nightclubs to try to find a husband, as always. And right. she didn't drink much. So despite what you might read about her in other places, she didn't drink much. And she also didn't go home with the men that she met. Oh. So that's one thing that she just – she's portrayed as – as slutty and promiscuous all the time. She, she is, yeah. Really wasn't. Not at oh, all. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm she, she did to have stay some upbeat here. I know, sorry. She had some some roommates that were interviewed after the things that happened to her happened. Her roommates described her actually as a fish out of water in L in LA. So they're like she was kind of naive and childlike and just maybe not even understanding what men wanted. She turned a lot of men down in that way. Where Seriously. she, Yeah. she Well, I, I bet she did. But she just acted kind of naive about it. So – or maybe her, her roommates were more open to doing things that Beth was not willing to do. I don't know. So – Gotcha. Um, yeah. She moved a lot of times throughout 1946. In California. So at first she was in Hollywood, and after that, she moves to Long Beach and she stays in a hotel near a popular drugstore where a lot of servicemen hung out. And she'd go to the drugstore really often, she'd hang out with the soldiers, and she made a ton of friends at this time because she was beautiful and kind and had a great smile. And around this time in 1946, a movie comes out and it's called The Blue Dahlia. It's starring Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. And due to this film's presence in pop culture and the fact that Beth wore black all the time, the friends started calling her the Black Dahlia. Oh, her friends started calling her that? Yeah. So that's a misconception that people have is that the the news came up with that or the, the reporters did that went crazy over this case. So the Black Dahlia, what she's called in the news, was actually a nickname that she knew she had before she passed away. Dahlias are beautiful. The flowers. They really are. It's one of my favorite flowers. I have a yeah. yellow one with like a little bit of red in the middle and it's so pretty. Oh, my okay. God. Anyway, is. moving on. Okay. Proceed. So after Long Beach, she met a wealthy nightclub owner named Mark Hansen. And Mark Hansen often rented rooms out in his home to aspiring actresses, and he had taken a platonic liking to Beth. So I just want to make sure I make that clear that it's a platonic, platonic. liking to Beth. Um, so he allowed her to stay in a room with his girlfriend, who was living there as well. I guess he wasn't staying, like, in the room with his girlfriend, or maybe she stayed in his room most of the time. But she shared a room with his was girlfriend he, named Anne Tom. Was he secretly gay? Was he secretly gay? I don't think so, because he's less platonic about her later on. Um, but um, by all accounts, there's nothing like fishy why is, here. Well, why is his girlfriend? Well, they probably just wanted to keep a 
a look about things like maybe like, oh, my girlfriend has her own room. Sorry, I booped the microphone. My girlfriend has her own room or whatever it is, you know, but maybe Beth just no. slept in that room and Anne did. I don't, they weren't there very long either way. She she was not there very long, like most places she stayed in 1946. So super brief. But when she's leaving, Mark decides that he's going to gift her an address book that he himself had carried for the last nine years. So because it was his address book, his name is written on the cover. And there were 75 contacts in this book comprised of many well-known individuals in the film industry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So he's trying to help her out. He's like, here's this book. So she ended up carrying this little black book everywhere she went after this. A lot of her acquaintances said, like, you know, she always had her little black book on her. 1946, it's coming to an end. And she lived in a small apartment with seven other women. And these are the ones that said that she was naive before. (laughs) She stayed Mm -hmm. there for less than two months. And so on December 5th, she tells her roommates, and this is where she starts to kind of deceive people a little bit more than what we saw earlier and starts to, to change based on what everybody said about her up until this time. So December 5th, she tells her roommates that she's going to travel east to go see her mother. But instead, she heads to San Diego despite having no money and nowhere to live yet. But that's not something that's really ever deterred her either. She's she's willing to take that risk and move somewhere despite not having much to her name. Right, right. Yeah. So as always, she makes friends really easily and she befriends a woman named Dorothy French who invites Beth to come live with her and her mother. And she didn't tell Dorothy much about herself, though. She lies a bit and she says that she had been a hat model and was recently widowed by Major Matthew Gordon. So her former fiance, she just says that she was widowed by him. And that's all she tells Dorothy about herself. But a hat model? That's a really weird thing. It's a really weird thing to say. That's being like, I'm a foot model. It's the 40s. Women wore hats all the time. So maybe that was like a aspiring thing to do is be like, here's my hat. I'm going to start telling people that about myself when I don't want them to know anything about me. So everyone out in the audience, I don't know if you guys knew this about me, but I I was a hat model. Uh, I'm just imagining you with like a funny hat on. You don't have to imagine because I was a real hat model. Oh, wait, I'm going to pull up one of my photos I have of you and you're a hat model. That's right, bitch. You were a real model, though. Um, kind of. Jules did some modeling. Not like a whatever. Okay. Not like a magazine model, like a local model. Okay. Anyway. Like a local a little bit of runway. Yeah. Because she's beautiful. Aw, thanks. You're beautiful, too. Thank you. So during this time, she continues, of course, to visit clubs and bars, looking to meet servicemen. She's still trying to find that that perfect serviceman after her former fiancé passed away. So she did frequent the diner across the street from Dorothy's home. And instead of the usual description that we get about Beth being kind and friendly, The regulars at this diner describe her as being moody and irritable. And they just thought that it was because she was having a rough time finding work in the area. But the people that knew her best, because she did have a lot of other friends, they really felt like something much more had been going on. And they felt 
something serious was troubling her that she was not willing to talk to anybody about. She just wasn't opening up to anybody about what it was that was bothering her. But a week before Christmas. Sounds like it. Yeah. She meets a discharged serviceman, and his name is Robert Manley, and he goes by the name Red because of his hair. So Red had been discharged due to psychological issues and also happens to be married and had just had a baby with his wife. I don't know if Beth knew that he had a wife and kid. I don't think that she did based on some things that happen a little bit later on with these two. So I th- I think that she thought that he was single. That's my guess. Because her goal was to I... find and and get married and have children with somebody that had been in the in the army or the navy or whatever it is. She wouldn't be looking for somebody that had a wife and a kid. And she's I not really... sleeping with these men. Yeah, I, I really would hope. She's, she's not sleeping with Red? No, no. not Not by his account. But he also has a lot to lose, too. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. He sure does. Yeah. So she she hung out with him from time to time. And on January 8th, he picks her up from Dorothy's home in San Diego. And they head to L.A. for a night on the town. And he tells her that he doesn't want to drive back to San Diego that night, I'm guessing, because he was drinking. Or maybe they didn't care so much about drinking and driving at the time. I'm not really sure. But all in all, he says he doesn't want to leave L.A. that night. And so... He tells her that it would work well if they just got a hotel room together, but sleep separately in that hotel room, of course. Oh, because right. you know, because Beth doesn't engage in this promiscuous behavior, and she says, "Okay, like we can do that as long as we're sleeping separately." So they go out to dinner and they go dancing. And even though she didn't usually drink, she did decide to that night by Red's account, and. Red said that they kissed, but she got really, really sick from the alcohol because she wasn't used to drinking and nothing else happened. But like I said, he's a married cheater and he has a lot to lose to him saying that nothing happened. I don't know. He's a married cheater. Yeah, he's a married cheater. So in the morning, Red briefly leaves the hotel room. And I'm think this is why I think that Beth didn't know because He left the hotel room to make phone calls, which I'm guessing were probably to his wife. Right. He didn't want either person to hear. My car broke down and I. Whatever. He's a liar. So when he gets back to to the room, Beth is feeling better and they ended up leaving the hotel around noon. I'm going to tell you what she was wearing. So. To prove another point later on in the story. So, okay. Re- remember what, what she's wearing. So, she's wearing a black suit. So, pants, black suit. Okay. She has a long, full length black coat on with no collar on it. She's wearing white gloves and a white puffy blouse. She had on nylons as well with black suede high heels. And she had a plastic handbag. So, she was styling. She was styling. Yeah. She always wore black. So the couple heads over to Union Station in Los Angeles, where she checks two bags, leaving her without any extra clothing, makeup, or toiletries on her person. So these bags just go, and I think she was just waiting. She wanted them to hold them for her. Maybe she was planning to hop a train back to San Diego later or something along that line, because there is a train that runs along the ocean there that's a really pretty view between L.A. and San Diego. 
because I drove along it when I was there last. Okay. So um, after this, they head over to the super fancy pants Biltmore Hotel, which, by the way, is very haunted. Oh, the Biltmore. Yeah. Yeah. So they head over there, which is just a few blocks away from Union Station. And she tells Red that she needs to meet up with her sister there. And she tells him that her sister is a short blonde lady. Even His though, sister. yeah, but all of Beth's sisters have dark hair like she did. But she's looking Why for she somebody there because so much. I know. So she asked the hotel front desk attendant if her sister had checked in yet, and they said that she hadn't. So Red stays with her and waits till about six thirty p.m. So probably from like the early afternoon to 6 30 p.m and they're just waiting and waiting okay. and waiting and nobody comes but he had to go probably back home to his wife at 6 30 and so she kept waiting there until about 10 p.m she did keep talking to the person at the counter because she's in the hotel lobby like all day so she's sure. she's a friendly person so she's talking to the person at the counter they remember her very well but they said that because they're probably like up. they're probably like i need to get my work done yeah so, yeah, she, she takes off. She heads south is what they described. And, again, all of this would have been on January 9th. So, at this point now, we're going to swoop on back over, not back in time, but just over to Beth's mom, Phoebe. It's maybe, I don't know the exact date of this, but I'm assuming it's probably about a week later or so, maybe a little bit more. Mid-January in 1947, she's at her home in the Boston suburbs, and she gets a phone call from a reporter named Wayne Sutton, and he worked at one of William Randolph Hearst's. I'm sure you've heard of Hearst before. So Mm -hmm. one of his newspapers called the Los Angeles Examiner. He's a reporter there, and he explains to Phoebe that Beth has won a beauty pageant, and he just really wants to know more about her life. So that he can write an article about her. And Phoebe (sighs) is super excited. And she tells the reporter all about Beth's life. Because she's just so proud of her daughter for winning this beauty pageant. And that people care about her. So she tells them the whole life story. Probably about how she was sick. And how she struggled. But she's adventurous. And all of that good stuff. Other (sighs) reporters who were near this person when they made the phone call said that she was just like glowing talking about her daughter. Once the reporter gets all the information that he can about Beth's life, he breaks the news that she didn't actually win a beauty pageant, but she was found dead, murdered in Los Angeles. What is wrong with yeah. human This beings? piece of shit tells her that if she's willing to come to L.A. to assist with the investigation, <sighs> that the paper will pay for her travel and her accommodations. She did take the offer i'm sure because maybe she was struggling financially and was like this is the only way i can get to where my daughter's body is but she takes them but instead when she arrives they just keep her away from both the police and any other reporters because they're trying to you know like they're trying to protect their story and the one up that they have god everybody else. i'd be like yeah yeah give me give me the ticket and because really i'm gonna come down i'm gonna punch you in your nuts so hard that you find them in your throat yeah can you imagine Somebody calling you and asking a bunch of stuff about your daughter's life and then telling you, just kidding, I fucking lied to you about this the whole time while we've been talking and your daughter 
has been like very brutally murdered. I just can't even. (sighs) Yeah, during this, I think I put this in my notes later, but I'm going to say it right now. So during this phone call, while this reporter is making the phone call, his editor is sitting next to him listening. And then there's another reporter sitting on the other side. So the editor is in the middle of these two reporters. The other reporter is listening in and he's appalled like a normal human being would be the other reporter. The editor is just Mm -hmm. sitting by and letting him do this. And I guess when he got done getting all the information about her life, he puts his hand over the receiver and he asks the editor, okay, what do I do now? And the editor goes, you got to tell her. And then the shitbag reporter goes, he's like, you, you piece of shit or you motherfucker or something like that to the editor because he's like, Oh, I can't believe you're making me tell this guy or this lady that her daughter's dead. Like, you're the piece of shit that did that in the first place. Like, you are the piece of shit that did something like that. There's a special place in hell. Like, there's a there reserve is. spot for you in hell, sir. It was That's one of the most gross things I've ever heard of. Like, the person that did this is disgusting, but you need a story that bad that you're willing to just manipulate a woman whose daughter had just been brutally murdered. What a piece of shit. Okay. So anyway, let's talk about what really happened to Beth, otherwise known as the Black Dahlia. So on the morning of January 15th of 1947, it was really chilly out. And Betty Bersinger bundled bundled up her three-year-old daughter to walk some shoes over to a shoe repair shop in L.A.'s Lamert Park neighborhood, which was near 39th and Norton. So she's got her three-year-old in a stroller, and she's just walking along. And this neighborhood was really largely undeveloped in 1947. There were a lot of vacant lots, which is really different than what it is today. But as they're walking, Betty sees what she thinks is a department store mannequin lying on the ground in one of the open lots kind of from afar, and she thinks to herself that this might scare children walking to and from school. And so she goes and she knocks on a neighbor's door. I think she knocked on a couple of neighbor's doors before somebody answered because it's a a neighborhood. There's not a lot of people that live there. I'm guessing she probably knew people. Um, It is around 10 a.m. though. She's knocking on doors. Finally, somebody answers, and she asks them to call the police to remove the mannequin. While waiting for the police, she gets a closer look and realizes that it is not a mannequin. To be so sheltered and also call the police to remove a mannequin? Yeah. I mean, a sign of the times. Yeah, that is a sign of the times. That mannequin is offending me. Well, she thought it was going to scare children. I read an, an interview that somebody had with her that she didn't, think she was bombarded on the interview and didn't really want to talk about it so she was like I'll only tell the story once and because there's a lot of misconceptions that like her daughter was running around and the daughter came up on the dead body and all that stuff and she's like (gasps) no my daughter was in a stroller but um but yeah I think that she just thought it was going to scare some kids so so can do you know what's there now there's homes what is like there's just homes built over this spot I'm assuming so yeah 
it was just vacant lots. And now it's very, very developed because it's a neighborhood in L.A. So somebody's just living their life at this gruesome scene. Yeah. Unknowingly. Probably knowingly. Okay. I'm sure they know. I'm sure. They, they give right. tours through that area. So one of the podcasts I listened to on this, they were they said that they had been on a tour like through the area. So um, officers from the LAPD arrive. And, of course, they don't find a mannequin, but they find the naked body of a young woman. And this is where it gets gruesome. So she's severed in two at the waist, so cut in half, posed right. with her arms over her head, with her elbows bent. Her lower half was placed about a foot away with the legs spread unbent. Her intestines were placed underneath her buttocks and her other organs were still intact. There is no blood on the scene or left in the body, which results in a really pale appearance of her skin because there's no blood running through her. And this cut is very clean, right? Yeah. Like surgical clean? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, so... The officers call homicide investigators, but before the homicide investigators arrive, the media has found the scene as people are starting to gather around from the neighborhood. And one of these reporters was Agnes, otherwise known as Aggie Underwood. And despite her being a female in the late 1940s, she was ruled one of the top crime reporters in LA during the 1930s and 1940s. She was able to get Photos before the investigators arrived, which I have mixed feelings about. Um, She was not. She did work for for the examiner as well. The newspaper where the the person called and pretended to be (sighs) like it was a beauty pageant. But she didn't take any part in that is my understanding. So once the homicide detectives did arrive, they began to investigate the scene more thoroughly. Uh, It was one of the most gruesome scenes that any of them had ever witnessed. And a lot of them did struggle through getting through this investigation. Both halves of the body had been scrubbed clean with gasoline, which can react with the skin's oil in a way that would wipe away any fingerprints. So that oil is going to keep the fingerprints from, from sticking. And she had been scrubbed so hard that there were still some brush bristles embedded in her skin. There was bruising on many parts of her body And a chunk of skin had been removed on her upper left thigh. She had rope and wire burns around her wrists and her ankles, indicating that she was likely tied up before her death. Her mouth was cut open on both sides, slashed ear to ear in what many call a Glasgow smile. And the lack of blood at the scene indicated that she wasn't killed there, but at another location and then moved to the empty lot. For other evidence, they found a heel mark near, like a a heel mark from a shoe imprinted in the ground Mm -hmm. near some tire tracks. They also found a cement sack containing watery blood near the crime scene. So what I'm guessing here is that they took a bag of cement, like dry cement, and threw the blood into that was what I gathered from that statement. So, like, they used the blood to activate the concrete? I think so. And harden it? 
I think so. What the fuck? Yeah. There were no personal effects in the area, so she was considered a Jane Doe. And the next day, on January 16th, L.A. coroner Frederick Newbar conducted her autopsy. The autopsy stated that she was 5'5", 115 pounds, with green eyes, black hair, badly decayed lower teeth, and she had chewed fingernails. She had died approximately 10 hours prior to having been found, which would have been around midnight of the night before. And the cause of death was not the being cut in half, but blunt force trauma to the back of her head. She had been tied, beaten, and sexually assaulted prior to her death. There were wounds there that indicated that the body was injured more after death than there was before death. And the lack of bruising where she had been sliced in half indicated that this was done post-mortem as well. Okay. That was my, yeah. that was some of my questions about like the bruising, because obviously that would have happened before yeah. she actually expired. So it would have happened with Aww. like blood pooling. Yeah. The way in which she was yeah. bisected was very clean and skillful. Apparently there is a way that you can cut a human body in half without going through any bone which would be between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. And this is something that, I mean, like, you think about medical school, why would you need to learn how to cut a body in half through the waist? Like, when would you ever need to cut a body in half? I don't know. I, I, this is such a serious case. So the only thing that came into my brain was magic tricks. I'm okay. So sorry. <laughs> Well, that just keeps <laughs> things up. So I guess I, it doesn't okay. seem – from what I heard, it just said that they taught this in med school in the 1930s. And they taught how to cut somebody in yeah, half? Yeah, like probably with cadavers. And I'm I'm wondering, like, they must have stopped after this because they were like, we don't need to cut bodies in half of the waist. Maybe they thought that – that leg transplants like, would happen at some point or something. This is literally no a parlor trick. No. Yeah. There has been enough practicing going on in this, at least because it is known and they knew at the time that it would take at least a minimum of an hour and a half to complete this bisection. So they knew the amount of time that it would take someone. So Either way, no matter how weird this is or why somebody needed to learn how to do it, somebody doing this without medical training seems extremely unlikely. Yeah. So the police decide to ask the FBI for help in identifying the body because they were working with the Los Angeles examiner to investigate this weirdly. The examiner was very involved in this investigation. And so the examiner staff said, if you're going to get the FBI, FBI involved, you can use this. It's called it's a primitive fax machine that was used by news services back in the day, and it was called a sound photo. I think it was okay. one of the first times that something like this was used to get information quickly to different parts of the country. And so they sent her fingerprint to them like through another news agency in Washington, D.C., and then the Washington, D.C. paper brought it over to the FBI. So... Only 56 minutes later, 
they had matched the fingerprint to two records in their possession. One was from an employee at Camp Cook during World War II, and one from a young woman once arrested for underage drinking in California, Elizabeth Beth Short. They even found her mugshot at this time. And this was the point where that piece of shit called her mom and pretended that she won a pageant to get more details. He beat the police to it. That's so fucked. Yeah. It was really, really shitty. I think this is probably a good place to stop for episode one. Before we start talking about what happened in the days in between when Red left her at the hotel on January 9th and when she was murdered, and then talk about some of the theories that have taken place and that people have come up with because this case is cold and still unsolved. That's nuts. I just, I really want these kinds of cases like this, like the old, old ones like this, I just wish there was some sort of magic something, something that they had available that this doesn't have to remain a mystery. I think that I feel satisfied in my mind over who I think did this. I think and... I know who did it too. Um, so it'll oh, be interesting because okay. I, I have seen a lot on this one and have listened to other things watched the movie of course um but i i have some thoughts as to who this is as well so i'm interested to hear what you have to say on the rest of it but i did not i I had learned some about her and her past and like who she was as a person but it was it was still very interesting to hear all of her background it puts it in perspective when you really focus on the victim and not on the killer because yeah i think it really does i she's just been so misconstrued in the in the media and and we'll talk a little bit more about like that's why i wanted to just point out what she was wearing because that will be described differently by the media and who she really was as a person it just it turned into something ugly and oppressive a bit and kind of victim blaming almost with her and i am right. really curious about who you think did it so i i do because i know we're gonna we're gonna record right away so everybody else has to wait a week to hear this but i do have to go and drive my daughter somewhere in between us recording this if you're willing to record right away now and so if you wanted to look more i only really am giving a lot of information about the sub like it was it's very biased and i should give more time to the other theories but i'm giving most of the time to my okay. own theory that i have okay so if you wanted to like prepare yourself to have a discussion about it when we get there i would be totally so open to that. so we can fight can we fight yeah that's fine should we show or them not, like a I don't blog? really like fight, but I just like to hear. I think because the podcast yeah. that I listened to had this view and I was like, this is really convincing to me. I'd be really curious if there was a different way that you could convince okay. me so that now I okay. don't feel settled about who did it. So I already warned the doc that I was going to be like locked in my little in my little recording studio for a, a large chunk of the day. Thank you all for listening to this episode. We're looking forward to you listening into episode two to learn more about um, her her last days before she was before she was brutally murdered. So 
Again, if you're enjoying listening to our podcast, we would love it if you would follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. We would love if you left us a review. That was hopefully a good review because you're listening to us. It might maybe means you like us. And then also tell your friends about us. We have a hard time advertising because of the fact that we have the word shit in our name. So if you could please let your friends know that we exist, we would appreciate it. Also, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash weirdshitmymomsayspodcast. You can find us on Facebook at weird sh- or at facebook.com slash weirdshitmymomsayspodcast, but leave the I out of the word shit, again, because Facebook doesn't allow that in their advertising. On Instagram mm-hmm. and TikTok, it is at weirdshitmymomsayspodcast, and on Twitter, it's weirdshitmmspod. Again, weirdshitmmspod. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.